0: Well, here's the f- the final session. I'll be talking about a history of the Advent. Uh, before we begin, uh, as, as I always do, I bring in a collect or a prayer from our prayer book to start. And uh, this is the one I started with, and I'll end with it, uh, is the first uh, collect for the season of Advent. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us, In great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, Seeing how we're the church of the Advent, I figure fitting. Um, And I'll talk about that a little bit before I begin. So I'm going to give a history of our church, uh, which I've done I've been working on this project for two and a half years since I got here um, and I owe a lot of thanks to two people. One is Alice Bauscher, some of you might know who she is. For years she kind of served as our uh, church historian um, and maintained our archives, getting them to a place where she and I were able to last year donate all of our archival material uh, to the public library and their archives department, so it's now public domain. Uh, we decided that's the best thing to do because they're experts on maintaining that material. And grappling that material with it and uh, working with her has helped me to learn our church history. And I did that because I work on the editor of our church magazine. I hope you have a copy of it. And part of the vision is I wanted to pepper throughout some pieces of our church history that I thought sort of interesting or humorous sometimes. So we needed to go through the archives to do that. The second person... Um, I owe a lot of thanks to is John Harper, who still comes to church here. He was the, he was first a canon on staff, and then a uh, the vice dean, interim dean as well. And he wrote this book that was published a few years ago. It's a great, beautiful book uh, for your living room. Uh, it has a lot of history in it as well, and some devotions. Uh, it's really focused on the building, and the stained glass in particular, um, uh and so I've some streams of thought have gone into the history of the Advent. Uh two things and now a third thing developing. One is if you there are other books about the history of the Advent all here that you can buy and one of them I recommend out of all of these. And I'll say more about that later. But there are two kind of ways that people tend to talk about the history of the Advent. Usually and this is how history works. You tell it with the periods of those who are in leadership. So we'll talk about our rectors and deans or those who are acting pastors sort of marking different periods. I'm gonna do a little bit of that today because I'm still in a phase. I'm going through something and to to get somewhere else, okay? So bear with me, which is why I had the screen up here initially, but I decided I'm not gonna do that because I don't want I don't want to get hung up on the stuff. I want to get hung up on the themes really. And that's the third phase that I want to get into. We've focused also on the building and telling our history. And the people, but I'm really interested in some themes. What are some themes in the history that inform where we are now and where we're headed? Um, and the reason I want to do that is I don't want us to uh, get hung up on the past and what was done in the past. And churches uh, can easily say things like, "Well, we've always done it that way." But if you read the, <laughs> if you read the history of the church, that's not true. Usually, so much has actually changed. But with all that prologue. Uh, I'm going to start with some themes. I'm going to creep into telling you the history of some of the rectors and deans just because that's in my mind, the way to break it up. If you come to this class, if I ever teach it again, I'll be in a new place, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so here are some themes. The first one I want to talk to you about is the the place of the, the church in the city of Birmingham and its history. Um, uh, and, uh, really, that's because God has placed us here in Birmingham for a reason, and uh, that's important to take note of. That's true for all Christians. Wherever you are, God's placed you where you are. In your proximal uh, vicinity, uh, you're called to do ministry, and that's true of our church, which was founded with the city. Um, And by many of the same uh, early leaders of the city of Birmingham. The the, the city was founded in December of 1871 by a company called Eloton, which uh, uh, had a lot of property. Uh, It was a post-bellum, so post-Civil War town, uh, which is really important for the the city's history. Um, It's a really young city for the South uh, and for the United States actually younger than my hometown, San Francisco, if you think about it that way, which was founded in 1849. But uh, Birmingham, founded in 1871 by uh Land Company and around a railroad line with some prospect for potential iron industry. You all probably know a lot of this history. And the Eliton Land Company, which had 4,000 acres right here, which was basically wilderness or farmland with very few structures and the railroad line coming through it, uh, they gave five plots here downtown for the five major uh, Christian denominations. Um, uh, us, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian. Uh, four of those are still here. Uh, the ba- Baptist Church used to be on this same street here, a couple blocks, which is now a Regions Bank parking lot. If you know that <laughs> lot, the Baptist Church has moved to over by Stanford University. That used to be here downtown. There were some other churches that came quickly thereafter, but those were the five initial churches that Elleton gave some property to, and uh, some of the the big names in Eloton, one of them being Josiah Morris. You know Morris Avenue. <laughs> by the railroad tracks, (laughs) right? Josiah Morris was an Episcopalian from Montgomery, uh, uh, probably the wealthiest guy in Alabama at the time. Episcopalian, St. John's in Montgomery, made sure that the Episcopal church got the choice piece of property at the corner of the Main Street 20th and 6th Avenue. And this was a residential neighborhood. Isn't that interesting? There were houses right there. If you look at the early maps, and that's how churches usually are, right? I mean, you put a ch- church where the people live, not in the sort of financial district <laughs> that we're in now. But the city's changed in a hu- dramatically in 144 years. But so we were given the prime piece of real estate because a lot of these uh, blue blooded Episcopalians involved in the Elton Land Company. Um, and so the church was founded in 1872, just a month or so after the city was founded, 144 years ago. Uh, and it started just as a gathering of people. It didn't start as a building. you know that's important to think about in terms of church. When people talk about church, it comes from originally it goes back to the Greek word, which means assembly, a gathering of people. that's really what a church is. It's not a building, but we've you know over the course of the progression of language, usually when we say church, we think of what a building like the stately, beautiful building that we have at the corner of 6th and 20th, but it started as a gathering of people who soon built a a wooden church. If you go out those doors, right about there would have been the front entrance. So the entrance would have been here on 6th Avenue, not on 20th Street. Uh, So kind of the south end of Klingman, kind of toward where the the chapter room is now. That's where the original wooden, small wooden frame church uh, stood. Uh, and it was uh, expanded several times over its course. Eventually kind of had an L shape, which I don't know, when you look at the map, I don't know what that really meant, if that meant the seating was kind of awkward or if that was an addition built on. But it was built to eventually seat uh, 200 people, which was four times the congregation, Uh, which is an important theme that I want to point out, and this carries on, where the advent from the beginning had a vision that we're going to grow. We're going to reach more people than we have here now. started with that small gathering of people, building a church that expanded four times to fit four times or two times to fit four times the people that it had um, uh, and uh, that was true also when eventually the the other uh, building was built. Uh, Before I get to that, though, some other things that sort of represent around here that you'll see or interest in are place in the city of Birmingham. One is represented by the, um, and this is why I put it here on the cover, something that I think is kind of tucked away and lost. In the chapel on the side, there's a stained glass window of Jesus, and on the sides of him is flanked of sort of iron forge building and a hotel, which kind of is a symbolic of the city of Birmingham. Here Jesus is, resurrected Jesus in the city of Birmingham, which is why I highlighted it in the second version of the magazine and got this artist to create this piece of artwork inspired by it. Um, and if you, when, if you are confirmed in May, we'll have a kneeler for you and look down when, if you'll remember at that time or you'll see it at the rehearsal, the, 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 uh, needlepoint, uh, kneeler cushion, it's very similar. It's, it's kind of really old-school looking, like maybe the 50s or 60s. Uh, also, uh, Jesus, uh, resurrected Jesus with kind of a Superman-looking cape and a skyscraper and a factory, a lot like this window, highlighting uh, the, the place of the church as the body of Christ in its city uh, and the, 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 the importance of that. Um, And I sort of, so here's that first theme that I'm really sort of honing in on uh, with the Advent and its sort of founding with the city and its place in the city. I want to sort of think of the Advent, now it is a parish, it's a congregation, and that's really important. Secondarily, I think we have a place in the city that's a lot like Railroad Park. People have called Railroad Park the um, front yard or living room of the city of Birmingham, have you heard that? And It's really new. Um, I'd like to think of the Advent being a, a, a church for the city. Someone told me, who's really uh, sort of important here in town, uh, told me, you know, the Advent's the only downtown church I've actually been inside. I've just never even been in any of those other churches. Uh, he, he said, I just feel like the doors are kind of open. That I can come inside the church, I can go in the garden, I can walk down the hallway and go to the bookstore. And so even not as a member of the church, I feel like I can, I can go there. I can sort of belong there. Uh, and that open door uh, is really important. We ought to hang on to that. And actually it's, folks like him start to come, they come on Sunday and they start to become a part of our church body after a while there are a few things that sort of represent this for me one is that feeling is our bell tower which will ring and that usually i often teach in this classroom so that's my marker that class is ending it rings 10 minutes before the church services start but also rings during the week if you work downtown close by you'll hear it at the beginning of the work day at around noon when you're going out for lunch and uh, when the work day ends and we play hymns that hopefully are familiar enough that they get stuck in your mind is sort of a clarion call literally for people who are right here downtown working. Another thing that I love to think about in terms of this theme is the compassionate Christ statue which is at the corner. Maybe you've never seen it before because you always enter through this door or that one over there. Actually go out to the front the literal the the proper front of the church you'll see a, a compassionate Christ statue who's kneeling like this having compassion on the people walking by, uh, the city of Birmingham. Uh, another one is our rector's garden, uh, right next to the church building. You know, if you're here during the week around noon, there are a lot of sort of corporate types wearing suits who will sit there eating their maki fresh or Zoe's. Uh, it's actually a graveyard, it's a columbarium, and it's, it, people are welcome to come eat there, just as you, you should feel okay to eat in any graveyard. Uh, But it's a beautiful garden also, uh, and it's uh, just in the same way that I said that about being the church for the city, as much as Railroad Park is open for people to enjoy, um, I wish more people kind of knew about that hidden gem over there, that garden. I eat lunch there once in a while when I just sort of need a break. In In the midst of the chaos of downtown in the weekdays, it doesn't look chaotic on the weekend. But if you ever come downtown, you know, I mean, it's a busy place. Uh, during the week, uh, we've got this sort of uh, place of uh, refreshment there. And I think that the name, the Advent, is really important in this respect. I, I don't know the history of the naming. I don't know if anybody really does. The church burned down, so maybe we lost some of our early kind of history in that fire. Um, but the Advent is about Christ's coming, Uh uh, both his first coming as a small child and all humility um, you know to the city of Bethlehem to the uh, suburb of Jerusalem but also means Christ's second coming where he'll reestablish establish uh, a new heaven and a new earth and create a heavenly city a new Jerusalem um, and so maybe there's something about that name uh, and uh, um, who knows? But uh, well, so there you go. That's so. That's the uh, oh. It's oh, the other thing I wanted to say about it is it's the first season of the church year, and as being one of the earliest churches, perhaps the first. I, I don't know if we really were kind of the first church or not. Birmingham was then not what it is now. We've annexed a lot of other cities around us, so there were other churches in this geographic region. There was a, a, a an Episcopal church called St. John's Elton which was, is Basically where that antebellum home, what's that home called? Arlington. So there were churches in what's now Birmingham, but that was a different kind of town, but we were one of the, the first churches, uh, here in, uh, what was, became Birmingham proper. Second theme I want to focus on is gospel ministry, the importance of preaching and teaching in the life of the Advent, which has been really hammered and, uh, most recent tenures of rectors here, especially with uh, Paul Zoll and Frank Limehouse, and you could say Larry Gibson. But you see that theme throughout the, the history as well. Um, remember what I said about that original church, which was built right here, was enlarged a couple of times with the vision of, we, wanna, we want more people to come and hear this message. And that church burned down on Thanksgiving Day, 1892. And remember, this was a residential district, so people would have saw that fire They would have come right here to help put it out. uh, And they were able to recover a few things in the fire. Uh, Some of the silver we use for communion, uh, the brass eagle lectern that we have where people read uh, the Bible lessons, uh, the cross that's at our uh, communion table, and the baptismal font that we have in the, the baptistry the back corner of the church were all in that original wooden building that burned down and were salvaged. But that's really not the point I want to say. I want to focus on this idea of gospel ministry. They were already building, while that happened, uh, that fire over there, they were already starting to build a stone church over there. There are some maps from the late 1880s with the footprint of the building. Remember, the building over here burned down in 1892. So they were working on it for several years. And that church fits comfortably 800 people. Well, uh, comfortably back then. <laughs> they had a congregation of uh, fewer than 200 people at the time when the church burned down. So again, that vision of expansion that we're going we're to reach more people um, for the sake of the gospel Uh, And another thing that really uh, is symbolic of our gospel ministry is our Lenten preaching series, which, do you know how old the Lenten preaching series is? 108 years old. Actually, the next one will be the 109th. It started in 1908. It's the longest uh, midweek preaching series like that for Lent uh, in, uh, in the United States. And it's not like we just do it Wednesday evening. Every stinking weekday, uh, on top of the fact that we do ministry around here on Sunday all day, Monday through Friday, we've had a preacher coming for a hundred and some odd years uh, to preach from that uh, pulpit. Um, uh, And uh, so that, you know, that's important to make note of, that we could have done a lot of other things, like have a food festival, but we decided to have a preaching festival instead. (laughs) Uh, But we turned it into a food festival. So I take that back. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but the, pr- the preaching is the primary part, not the lunches. Um, the lunches kind of keep people around. The other, another theme that I want to highlight in the history of our church is the leadership of women. Uh, now, the history that I'm going to tell starting in about five minutes is the history of the leadership of men, the different rectors and deans that have come through, but women have always played a strong part in the, uh, from the beginning, the, uh, the leadership of the church. In the early days, they really uh, raised a lot of the funds uh, for the church infrastructure that we have around here. Um, and here's a funny story: in 1890, they had an event called a kermis, which is like a, um, is a dance uh, exhibition. It's not like dirty dancing. It's uh, they bring people from European cultures to come and uh, give demonstrations of cultural dance styles from different countries in Europe and the ladies thought this would be a great fun time, educational, and we could sell tickets and, and uh and make some money from this, uh to pay off uh some debt that the church had and to furnish the church as well. Uh and uh the uh many other churches in town, many of the other churches I mentioned here downtown and, and throughout the city were absolutely appalled by this. Uh, They called it wicked. Uh, The Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian ministers wrote a common statement that said, A church that would do such things for the purpose of making money is rotten at the core. (laughs) And the Birmingham News came to the lady of the Church of the Advent's defense, saying, Look, they're just trying to have a nice festival and raise some money. Were you going to say something? Right. The fire came two years later. Yeah, I bet a lot of people said, you see? <laughs> see what happens when you have a dance festival? Um, so, uh, well, that was another one. Another one, uh, a year later, the Ladies Aid Society challenged the building committee, which was made up of men, uh, to get them to pay off another $7,000 uh, note uh, debt that the church had, uh, and said if the men could only just raise 5000 the ladies will raise 2000 and the men didn't realize that the ladies were sitting on top of two $1,000 bonds already. <laughs> um, so they were basically just getting the men to pay off the rest of the debt, and it worked. It worked. Uh, and then another one is in April 1893. Now this is right after the the church uh, fire, and they're finishing up the church building. Uh, which took several years to build, about six or seven years to complete that building before it would be used for worship, needed pews. And so they held a strawberry festival in 1893, and it went from 8 p.m. to 12 midnight uh, on this day in April, and they raised the money for the church pews that we now still sit in today. Isn't that fascinating? Um, They sold strawberries? Yeah, sold strawberries, and it was a festival, so there were probably some other activities. Maybe there was another kermis. Who knows? <laughs> I've always thought, even you know, maybe we ought to have another kermis. Maybe we ought to have another strawberry. I don't know. Um, but we have the Latin preaching series, which is enough. <laughs> um, it's a lot of work. Um, and now let me talk about. I've got about um, oh golly, fifteen minutes. Um, some of the um, the past rectors. Uh, and, you know, I'm always nervous about this. Listen, I, um, I'm i just a soul whose intentions are good. Uh, please don't <laughs> let me be misunderstood, okay? Now, some of you have been in this church for decades and know more of the history than I do. I've just read this stuff and talked to a lot of people. But I'm trying to tie the themes together as a sort of partial outsider. So if I miss some themes, uh, some details, I'm, I'm not doing that intentionally. I'm trying to to really connect the dots here for some themes so that we can... Stand on these shoulders and move forward and not look backward and say, well, we've always done it that way, but to say, we live in 2016, going on 2017, what can we learn from the themes of our past to help us imagine an, a future? Um, things like when they built a sanctuary four times its size. You know, I'm the pastor of our five o'clock community, which is currently about 100 people or so. We kind of outgrew the refectory. And uh, the past three months, we moved into the nave, and one of the things I said, as I told that story, I said, you know, we're just like the the earliest church that went in that space. And maybe we can fill it too. So you see, that's how you can stand on the shoulders of the past and imagine a new future for the possibility of uh, proclaiming the gospel to new people. So here's some some the whirlwind history of past leaders of the church. From 1872 to 1882, for the first 10 years of the church, there was just sort of A lot of different guys come in and being leaders, and some of them weren't even priests. The first sort of minister of the church was a deacon, weren't even. That sounds terrible. But he couldn't celebrate communion, so that gives you an idea of the ministry around this place that probably had to wait for the bishop to come through to even have communion. Um, uh, His name was Philip Fitz, and his portrait is right out those doors. I think it's the first one there on the right. And we based it on a portrait we had of his head and had someone else pose for the body. So that when you look at that, know that that's not Philip Fitz's actual torso. Um, I think it's a guy who's still living. Um, but uh, anyway, so he was the, he was very young, uh, had a, a beard that I envy. Uh, and, uh, and so he wasn't here for very long. And then there were a lot of other guys uh, who came through. And it wasn't until 1872 that we had a rector named Thomas Beard who also had a nice, a better beard than Philip Fitz, who was the rector for 14 years. Uh, so we went from 10 years of sort of a, a revolving door of leadership, uh, which probably laid the foundation in the early years for a real strong later leadership around here, because uh, they had to, you know. And probably maybe even some of that focus on gospel ministry, because it really couldn't have been about you know communion all the time because there hardly ever was communion in the earliest days you have to imagine um and i'm not saying communion isn't important but the focus was probably on discipleship and preaching if they had a deacon here the first couple of years and then thomas beard came and that's a the first in a pattern of very long serving rectors he was here for 14 years and we owe a lot uh to his leadership uh him being the first long-term rector he also oversaw two building additions to that bur- the building that burned down while he was the rector, and then he oversaw the initial construction of our current church, um, which was built during uh, his time, and uh, probably uh, in part uh, due to the sort of industrial and economic boom that finally happened while he was the, the rector. Remember, in the earliest days, the city was just being founded and uh, there was prospect of industry but it wasn't until finally during beard's term that there was economic boom and used that uh, money to to start building the the church which um uh grew uh, the congregation uh, finally grew under his by the time he left to 559 people Starting with fewer than 200, but during those 14 years with that vision of expansion and a space that will fit 800, grew to 559 people while, uh, during his tenure. Uh, but there were economic problems, there were some depressions during his tenure as well, so they started the project thinking they had more money than they had. And that's why it it took like six, seven years uh, to complete. After him, there was a guy named John Murray, who was the rector for seven years, and he went on to become the first elected presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. There were presiding bishops before that. They were just appointed by their peers. He was the first elected, and uh, uh, the first in a long line of rectors of the Advent who would go on to become bishops. Uh, For a time, people called this a a bishop-making church because a lot of the pastors went on uh, and became bishops. Um, oh, what else do I want to say about Murray? Um, um, when he, and he, you know, he was a businessman, uh, and uh, so he used a lot of sort of business acumen to, 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 to strengthen the church, and when he left, the Vester wrote him a note that said, you leave us the largest, strongest, and most unified church in the whole of Alabama. Um, after him, there was a guy named Quincy Ewing. I don't have a lot of history on him. It seems to be a period of stability. Uh, uh, and then, uh, after Ewing, there was a guy named, uh, William Evans, who served from 1907 to 1913 for six years. And the preaching series got founded, uh, under him in 1908. Um, uh, I'm going to skip over a, a couple of folks, uh, uh, Middleton Barnwell uh, and Charles Klingman, for whom Klingman Commons is named and tell you about after those two guys there was someone named Charles Carpenter who served from uh, not, only 1936 to 38 as our rector for two years uh, because he went on to become the bishop not of another diocese but the bishop of Alabama and actually his office was right above us here and that is an important sort of a point in the history of the Advent because it uh, it was a beginning of a strong uh, connection with the leadership of the diocese uh, and sort of planting the earliest seeds for us to become now we are the Cathedral. The bishop having his office right here on the grounds and being the past rector of the church continuing to have that strong relationship uh, got us to a place where finally we'd end up becoming uh, the Cathedral of the Advent. And Carpenter was the bishop for a very long time uh, here in Alabama. Many of you probably knew him. You might have been confirmed by him. He's a very large, imposing man. He was a wrestler at Princeton. When you walk out those doors, the portrait you'll see straight ahead is him, and it's the largest one <laughs> uh, because uh, he was a real big guy. And apparently, if you were confirmed by him, you could sort of, like people tell me, you could feel his massive hands. Weighing down on you. Well, when Carpenter, so I want to tell you about Carpenter really so I can tell you about the shift, uh, uh, into what is probably now sort of the modern contemporary history of the Advent. Him leaving to become the bishop, he, uh, he called a guy named John Turner to become the rector of the Advent because Turner, uh, was the, the rector of a church up in Gadsden who was known as the best preacher in the state of Alabama. And so when uh when Carpenter became the bishop, he wanted the the best preacher in the state to become the uh the the, the pastor of the church that he's leaving. And Turner was the longest serving rector here at the advent. He served for twenty seven years. He died on the job, the only uh rector to die while he was still Uh, serving as rector. Uh, And of course he had that close relationship with Bishop Carpenter, which was important. And during his tenure uh, also what happened was the civil rights unrest. Um, And uh, Carpenter actually, not Turner, but Carpenter, the bishop, whose office was up there, was one of the recipients of Martin Luther King's uh, uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, So those two uh, were here during that period. Um, and uh, um, and also war, you know, Vietnam War was happening at the time. Uh, and uh, so with Turner and then the guy who followed him, Agricola, you'll, you see Hugh Agricola, uh, he became the rector after Turner because uh, he was uh, Turner's uh, associate. And Turner died on the job. Agricola got the job. Um, and uh, the country changed dramatically during that period, uh, the 60s and then going into the 70s, with the civil rights unrest and also, which was really, this was the hotbed of it. I mean, three blocks away, 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, right? Someone told me they were a child at the Methodist Church down the street, and they were in Sunday school and they heard that bombing uh, while they were in Sunday school just a block away. Um, Uh, And so here we are, downtown, what used to be in its beginning a residential district through the economic growth of the city. That changed uh, slowly over time. In the 1960s, what happened? White flight. Um, People moved to suburbs. They left the city. And so during Turner's time and Agricola's time, you see the, the church numbers sort of shrink. A little bit because of that demographic shift it wasn't anything to do with their leadership that's not what I'm saying I'm just saying that's what was happening right here in the city of Birmingham and uh, the church had to struggle with do we stay downtown we're geographically in a different place than uh, where most of our people live they're now living over the mountain as it were in other places and some other churches decided uh, including the Baptist, street down, Baptist Church down the street and some other churches to to move their ministry to where their people are. Um, But uh, Turner uh, and Agricola decided to, no, let's stay down here. Let's keep the day school down here. Let's strengthen our ministry. The building expanded. uh, Children's programs expanded. Uh, Did I say the day school started during that time? Uh, and one thing that uh, is uh, part of Turner's legacy is that Compassionate Christ statue there at the corner, which he had put uh, there, um, you know, Christ to the city. Um, uh, so so, um, so the, the church decides we're here to stay downtown where we've always been. We're going to not only continue our ministry, we're going to expand our building. If some of you were here back in the day, apparently these were all different kind of buildings. You had to go down steps and go outside, and it was real awkward. Uh, It's only been in the past several decades that all these buildings have been connected to become sort of one continuous campus. Um, uh, And so after uh, Hugh Agricola, uh, who served for eight years after Turner into the mid-70s, Brinkley Morton came, and he's the guy, if you look at the portraits out there, who has all the the military ribbons on his stole he was a uh, not only was he a world war ii hero uh, he was a state senator in the s- state of mississippi before finally becoming an episcopal minister uh eventually becoming the rector of the church of the advent and i think he brought a lot of that um, institutional mindset to uh, to the advent because after that period of uh, civil unrest, social changes, and white flight, the church shrinking a little bit under uh, Brinkley Morton, him bringing his sort of administrative mind, the church blossomed. Uh, It went from like 1,100 people to 1,600 people in the 1970s. And a whole new generation of people here at the Advent probably owe it to Brinkley. A lot of people who are still here probably owe it to Brinkley Morton's leadership uh, for being members of the Advent. Um, uh, and uh, um, uh, and also uh, the, his wife uh, played an important role in bringing the Lenten lunches uh, back. There's been a, a, a history of the Lenten lunches kind of having something going on during the Lenten preaching series, but it wasn't until the 1970s that it became what it is now today, where it's the solid thing where we serve lunch uh, every single afternoon. What else do I want to say about Brinkley Morton? I'm probably missing something. Um, oh, under him, uh, in 1982, the church became the cathedral. Uh, so beginning from that kind of pattern with uh, Carpenter having his offices here on uh, the campus for 30-some-odd years until finally with Brinkley Morton us becoming a cathedral, uh, but that, the important thing about that is that we decided in that time to continue to be a parish church. That's why we're called the Cathedral Church of the Advent, and not the Cathedral of the Advent. We don't want to merely be an institution. We don't want to merely be the sort of chapel to the city of Birmingham. As I said, it's an important thing, but most importantly, we're here because of us, you know, we're the parish family. Um, so Brinkley Morton, uh, under his leadership, we became a cathedral. After him, there was a guy named Larry Gibson, and that's another change uh, in, I think, the tone of the Advent. Uh, Through the course of Larry Gibson's time here, he'd probably say he became a Christian. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but some people have told me he preached almost like a a sermon from the pulpit where he was kind of like, I've been converted, let me tell you this message, and got everybody to kneel like an altar call. And that was a, a real significant shift in the tone of the Advent from being Uh, sort of a a good uh, broad church Episcopalian place to really being more of a sort of evangelistic place. Uh, um, Really uh, hammering home the message of the gospel finally with Larry Gibson, who was also, like Brent Lee Morton, a very administratively minded guy. He went on to become the rector of St. Martin's in Houston, which is the largest Episcopal church in the United States. So that tells you a lot of the the sort of mindset that he brought here to the Advent, which saw further expansion under him and programs, Christian education. I'm running out of time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's actually a good note to end on, because after him uh, came Paul Zoll, then Frank Limehouse, and now Andrew Pearson. And I think Brinkley Morton's leadership, and then finally Larry Gibson's leadership, and you could say even John Turner's leadership, paved the path for what we saw with Paul Zoll bringing a very sort of Protestant, reformational teaching, not just merely evangelical, that continuing with Frank Limehouse, and now for sure with Andrew Pearson, uh, who's young enough to possibly serve as dean here as long as John Turner was the rector, um, which should bring some stability. Uh, And also uh, a new thing that I see with Andrew's leadership is not just the sort of pulpit proclamation gospel ministry, but a renewed focus in discipleship. Um, and uh, one thing he's been talking to us about for over a year now is this book, The Charles and the Vine, which I think is going to be emblematic probably of, if I could sort of be prophetic, of Andrew's uh, tenure here is not just gospel ministry, but also discipleship ministry, which is why uh, we're, we really invest in you all here in uh, this class, the Enquirer's class. It's why I've handed out this list of books if you want to study more and not let this be the end of your in- story as an inquirer. Um, and if you want someone to read these books with, you know, let me or Sandy now or Fontaine Pope, who's our small group uh, director, um, to really dig in um, because growth comes probably not just from a class, but finally taking ownership over your uh, learning as a follower of, of, of Christ. And um, so that's what I have to say. In the book that I have to recommend is the one at the bottom. There are all these history books that I pointed out that you can find in the bookstore. John Tur- Turner's beautiful, uh, John Harper's beautiful book. Um, there's a Lenten Lunches cookbook, which has a history of the Lenten lunches. Uh, there's a very early history, Church of the uh, Advent by... Uh, um, A woman uh, named uh, Mitty Owen McDavid that you can only find online. And then finally, this lady named Rebecca Rogers wrote two books. There's a newer book, but I'm going to recommend the older book, because the newer book, even though it's expanded, it's a lot of the same material. There's a lot more information about the diocesan history in this one and our place as a cathedral. But I think you could probably just read The Strength of Her Towers, if you're interested in all this stuff, uh, learning more about the history of the church, uh, through about the 1970s. And you can fill in the gaps with John Turner's uh, coffee table book, John Harper's coffee table book. Um, and, but, but this one we sell in the bookstore. It's a, it's a light read. You could read it in like uh, two afternoon sittings, probably. Um, So uh, with all that in mind, I hope you'll come to the luncheon next week and uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the cloud of witnesses that have come before us here in the city of Birmingham, especially the congregation of the church and uh, Cathedral Church of the Advent. Lord, help us um, to learn uh, from them and their ingenuity, uh, their imagination, what's possible and becoming uh, uh, hearers of your word and uh, followers of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.